Good morning, Christ City. I would like for us to pause and open in prayer with this ancient Byzantine prayer. Let's say these words together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of the first questions my friend asked me about a year before he died was this. He says, you know, Heath, what the only verse I can relate to in the Bible is? A little afraid, I'm like, I don't know, tell me. He says, he quotes to me the last half of Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. He says to me this, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says to me this, Heath, I have been abandoned by God. I've been forsaken by God. Why do innocent people have to suffer? I must confess, at that moment, I had absolutely no words to say. You see, for my friend, the suffering was very real. God was deafeningly silent. As a result, he rejected every concept of faith and complained to God that he did not exist. You see, my friend had a right to complain. At eight years old, he's sitting in a car with his mom, his dad, and his brother. Some guy blows a stop sign, crashes into the car, and my friend watches his mother, his father, and his brother die before his eyes. At f After that, he was taken in by his uncle. And his uncle, really not wanting to be saddled with an eight-year-old, physically abused him to the point where when my friend, he left at 14. He... He, he struggled in this world through sheer grit, determination, and self-sufficiency. I met my friend when he was 37. He had just had a kidney removed, and he was in really rough shape. He was dying what, what started out as testicular cancer and went and completely throughout his entire body. He was in the Greek hospital. And in the Greek hospital system, um, if you do not have family, you are in deep trouble. You see, your family provides frontline care. They actually act as your nurses. They give you your medicine. They provide blood for transfusions if you need. They even provide everything from your food to your toilet paper. And my friend had no family. So even though he hated God, even though he had no use for Christians, he allowed us as a new church to become his family. I sat with him through chemo, through radiation, through post-op care from countless surgeries, all the while discussing a motorcycle trip that we would take together throughout Greece that never would happen and we knew it wouldn't happen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How does an ancient poem in Lamentations chapter 1, essentially a funeral dirge about a traumatic death of a city, how does that actually affect us? How does that help answer my friend's question? I have been abandoned by God. Why? Why do innocent people have to suffer in this world? I'm going to give you the answer straight up. The hard truth about Lamentations, the reason why you are hardly ever hear anyone preach is because it deals with this question head on. It's visceral. It's gritty. It's glaring. And the blame is solely at our collective feet. Lamentations chapter 1 teaches us what Paul articulates in Romans 3.23 and the first half of 6.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. Sin is universal. Its destructive force is complete. Lamentations chapter 1 that we just read earlier is about the seriousness of sin and its consequences. People suffer in this world due to personal, collective, and societal sin. And people suffer due to the consequences of other people's sin. 
Not only do we get what we deserve, we suffer for, for what other people deserve. In an ultimate sense, sin could be defined as rebellion against God. Saying, I choose, we choose what's best for ourselves, our society. We choose how we live, how we act, we know best, and we do not need God or his ethics. Lamentation teaches us that this rebellion is sin. It has consequences, not only personally, but consequences that manifest itself in the brokenness across all levels of society. Sin says, I choose what's best for myself regardless of the effects on others. A policy of heath first. As a consequence of that rebellion, there is a trail of brokenness that is far and wide. Everything from global exploitation to marital breakdown. Pastor and author Sung Ching Ra says this about our text this morning. Lamentations chapter 1 presents as a funeral dirge to remind us that we cannot ignore what is right in front of us. Lamentation confronts us with the brokenness of this world and the sin that underrides it all. In Lamentation chapter 1, we have two speakers. We've got, in verses 1 through 11, uh, we find a sympathetic observer, a witness of the events that have happened, a narrator describing the state of the affairs and the utter desolation and ruin of Jerusalem. In verses 12 to 22, we are introduced to the city herself, our second speaker. We transition from a narrator observing and articulating to a first-hand account. We move from describing the situation to experiencing, to feeling the weight of anguish and loss. As you will notice, one voice is missing, and that's God's. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our outline this morning will be twofold. One, utter ruin and devastation. And two, a cry for mercy and justice. So let's get to the text. In verse 1, we are introduced to a city, a city that has fallen on hard times, empty, lonely, fortunes taken away, a reversal. The city that was once great is now empty and desolate, from royalty to slavery. In verse 2, we see a city with no comfort, a city betrayed by those closest, former friends and allies, now bitter enemies. In verse 3, we find displaced people, people suffering from physical hardship and servitude, no rest, no comfort. Any cause for celebration has been marred by physical violence and personal violation in verse 4. Children are forcibly removed from, by enemies in verse 5. Oh, that's hard. Loss of strength and prestige in verse 6. In verse 7, we see emotional trauma. We see the remembering of the good old days while mortal enemies sit back, mock, and laugh. Darling to pariah. This is the ancient equivalent of being canceled. In verse 8 and 9, we see personal and public shame. All of the dirty little secrets put on display for everyone to see. There is no Oprah here to confess to. In verse 10, we have a theological crisis. We've got a complete loss of faith through the utter desecration of the temple, the very thing that was untouchable by God, only by God himself. And lastly, in verse 11, we see the groanings of a complete economic collapse and ruin to the point of starvation. This list is long, and this funeral lament here, it makes us forcibly see a city that is dead. The loss is complete, the casket is open, and, and we can't ignore the body there. 
we are confronted with utter violation and destruction. Everything stripped, laid bare. What it described essentially is utter and complete hopelessness. We see a city forsaken by God. What makes Lamentations difficult for us, what makes my friends complaint, what it reveals, we can relate to many of the circumstances detailed for us as in, here in verse 1 through 11. Have we not been forced into isolation? Have we not once had a community and now it's empty? Have we once had a gathering that was full of people bustling and teeming? Now it's empty, sparse, separated. Others have been canceled, openly mocked by enemies. And to our shame, some of our children have been forcibly removed from our parents by the state. Some of us during COVID here have had to rely on the charity of others for our very food. Some of us have used to have power and prestige, and now we're the local pariah. Some of us have even come to question the very things we hold true about God himself. At this point, we all, we all find ourselves asking the same question my friend asks. Have I been abandoned and forsaken by God? Why do people have to suffer in this world? Now in my notes, I've got this thing that says, insert dumpster meme here. Essentially, 2020 has brought us a flaming dumpster floating down a flooded street caused by a hurricane. We have a hard time with lament. We have had a hard time with 2020. We can't answer this question because we are like Ross Duthat describes for us in his book, The Decadent Society. He describes it this way. It's possible that Western society has really leaning back in an easy chair, hooked up to a drip of something soothing and playing and replaying an ideological greatest hips mixtape from this wild and crazy youth, all riled up in its own imagination and yet, in reality, comfortably numb. The reason that why we have struggled in COVID, the reason why we are horrified and paralyzed by all the protests, the riots, the issues over racial injustice, the reason why we have differing opinions on how we should deal with these things, the reason why we all want 2020 to go away is the same reason that this poem here in Lamentations chapter one is difficult for us is because instead of being comfortably numb, we come face to face that we are on life support and the prognosis isn't good. Lamentations chapter one gives us the space to ask why. Why is this so? Why have we been abandoned by God and why do people suffer? The narrator here gives us the answer for us in verse 5 and in verse 8. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He gives it to us straight up, and he says like this. Verse 5, because the Lord has afflicted her for her multiple transgressions. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Jerusalem was abandoned and forsaken by God because of the multitude of her transgressions. Jerusalem is not innocent, and she suffers because she has sinned grievously. So if that's true about Jerusalem, if that's true, God's chosen city, what does that say about us? We don't like lamentations because we are thrust as a complicit player in this story. If this is true about Jerusalem, where are we? Now, wait a minute here, you're thinking. Haven't you always said, Heath, that God is abounding in love, full of compassion? What about forgiveness? If we suffer due to sin, oh, whatever happened to grace, whatever happened to mercy, and where's your gospel good news, Heath, that you love to tell us about? This is why we need to look at point number two. 
and the cities that need it cry for mercy. Instead of a third-party sterile evaluation here of the city, we hear the pain and the anguish from the city herself. The second voice in our text here. Verses 12 to, 20, 12 to rather 14 says this, It is nothing to you. All who pass by, look, see, if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which is brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand and they were fastened together and they were put upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those of whom I cannot withstand. The city in sorrow, in anguish, acknowledges the punishment from God due to sin. Oh, she cries out because this sin is so heavy upon her, it crushes her. We are left with utter, utter hopelessness, despair. The God who was to protect, who was to comfort, was nowhere to be seen. Verse 16, for these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for my enemy has prevailed. We have a stark picture here of the consequences of absolute hopelessness due to a life lived by continued unrepentant sin. Not only for the guilty party, but one that spills over into all facets of life, particularly here for the women and the children. Lamentations paints for us a picture of complete and absolute destructive power of sin. We are all culpable. Sin leads to death. Sin is the origin story of all that is broken in this world. Lamentations is horrifying. It's a warning sign for all to see. Yet, in the city's pain, in her groaning, she turns towards God, confesses her sins, and recognizes that her pain was of her own making. Verse 18, the Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word, but hear all you peoples, and see my sufferings. My young men and my young, my young women rather, and my young men have gone into captivity. Bad things happen to people due to the consequences of mankind's continued rebellion against God. Romans 3.23 again. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jerusalem was a city that lived generation upon generation upon generation in idolatry and rebellion against God. If you don't believe me, go read your Old Testament, particularly Judges through Chronicles. In fact, turn with me to 2 Chronicles 36, 15, and 16. We find this explanation tucked into a narrative here of the city that's destroyed. 2 Chronicles 36, 15, and 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Oh, those are hard words. Unconfessed, unrepented sin, mocking, rebellion against God himself led to this city's destruction. Lamentations chapter 1 is Jerusalem's deathbed confession. Look at verse 20. 
Lord, O Lord, Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. For the wages of sin is death, and we feel that pain. God is righteous and justified in his anger. No one is innocent. The poem ends with a final cry for mercy, a cry for justice, a cry for God to be true to his word. Look at verses 21 and 22. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble and are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all of their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. Because of all of my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. The poem ends with the faintest glimmer of hope. Not a hope derived from rebellion or of self-sufficiency, no. Not even a hope for rescue or of self-preservation, but rather one of vengeance and of justice. A hope based solely on the holiness and righteousness of God. It's a cry for mercy that says, God, we repent of our wrongdoing. We are your people. You have punished us for our rebellion. But God, be true to your word and punish those who you use to punish us. Lamentations is like having the band-aid ripped off of our self-sufficiency and our self-justification in dealing with hard things in life. Lamentation exposes the festering wounds of persistent and unrepented sin. And it shows us where it leads, directly to a funeral. This is the Debbie Downer moment of all Debbie Downer moments. Lamentation, though, gives us the pause, the space to say to God, oh, please give us your mercy. Things are not all right. We are sinful and we are broken. Our lament, our complaints to God are not just sourced from skewed perception of justice or suffering, but rather lamentation shows us the proper orientation of our complaints directly towards God himself in prayer. It is a confession and repentance of our deepest sin, acknowledging that this present brokenness of our sufferings is not okay, and we are to lay that at God's feet, our deepest groanings right there, and to trust just as Jerusalem had to trust in the character of God, his mercy and his justice. We are left in Lamentations chapter 1 with no answer, no closure, no mercy, little hope, only a funeral. We have seen two voices, the city itself and an observer. God was silent. But he may be silent here in Lamentations, but that is not a universal principle. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 10 and 11, chapter 29 rather, verses 10 and 11. And I want to show you something very significant to not forget. See, Lamentations is written from the perspective of a person in the city who has seen what's gone on, who is left behind, who is not one of the exiles. The prophet Jeremiah was one of those types of people who was there. He witnessed everything. Directed by God, he wrote a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And, and from God himself, he writes these words. Jeremiah 29, 10, 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God is saying, I am silent right now, but you are not alone. 
Even though this city is dead, catastrophically destroyed, in ruins, all is not lost. In this letter, God reminds these exiles that God was true to his character, true to his promise. He was not nefarious. He was not evil. But rather, in difficulty, in the darkest of hours, he was trustworthy. There was a hope and there is a future. God states here that a city that was dead would be brought back to life. A city full of sin would be redeemed and restored. Christ City, hear me on this. If you hear nothing, hear me on this. Seventy years later, God fulfilled his promise. Today, more than two millennia later, Jerusalem still stands as a city. Babylon doesn't. Think about that. Let that settle in. God may be silent here in lamentations, but he has not forgotten his people nor ignored their welfare. Two months before my friend died, in a rare moment when he was out of the hospital, my friend came with us to the seaside as a church to witness and to celebrate the baptism of my daughter. Intrigued and a little confused by the event, he pulled me aside and he said, well, can I get a new name? Not following his thinking, I'm like, oh, what do you mean? Well, in Greece, he says, you know, we as Greeks, we are, we're baptized as babies and we receive a new name at the time of our baptism. I'm like, do you know what baptism means, Spiros? He says, no, I don't. So I respond, it's a public confession of faith in Jesus. It's saying that Jesus has died for sin, that I too die with, for sin. That I, when I go under the water, I, I, it's like I'm crucified with Jesus. And when I'm raised out of the water, I am raised to new life with him. I, we, Kiara receives new life in Jesus. We are clean. And a public, this is a public declaration that he will return once again and restore everything that has been wrong, all the brokenness. She gets more than a new name. She receives life in Jesus. And even though death and decay are here right now, she will be made new. And his takeaway was this. Do you mean I can get a new body? Oh, I'm like, yeah. After that day, my friend changed. He became absolutely fascinated with the resurrection. He surrendered himself to the resurrected Jesus about a month before he died, before he surrendered his body to the ground. My friend came to realize that God was not silent. He saw that the true pain and the true power in Jesus' words on the cross in Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My friend confessed his sin and his anguish and he realized that these words were said for him. All the anguish, all the horror, all the pain, every vile thing that my friend suffered, everything Lamentations 1 speaks about as a consequence of sin, Jesus takes it all. Jesus suffers in silence for our sin, for his sin. The horror, the destruction, the violation of, and the shame of Jerusalem, we read in Lamentations 1, is mirrored on the cross. All Jerusalem felt the silence of God being forsaken, alone, in anguish. No comforter. This was endured by Jesus. Jesus, in a very real sense, is a better Jerusalem. He died so that my friend could live. Jesus was forsaken so that we don't have to be. Lamentations 1 shows us this is true even if he feels silent right now, right here in this moment. Jesus dies so that our only hope 
Our only hope in this cruel world is not vengeance. Christ City, our hope is in a Jesus who died. Who died and was raised to life so that we have the power to do the impossible. We can love our enemies. Forgive rather than call for their destruction. This is something that Jerusalem could not do. This is something that our culture cannot understand. Jesus being forsaken means that we can surrender our need for justice, for all the suffering, everything that's bad that's been happening, we can surrender that to him. This surrender may not change your circumstances or even your current suffering, but like my friend, it can change your heart and it will give you a hope. It will give you a resurrection hope. We still live in broken world with consequences that are horrible. Lamentations 1 teaches us and, our, and, our, and forces us to grieve and grapple with the first part of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But Lamentations in the context of Jesus gives us hope beyond our current suffering. And we read, and we read all of Romans 6.23, we read this. He says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a hope. We have a resolute hope that Jesus can transcend our circumstances. Christ City, even in our darkest hour, we have this hope. In our suffering through lament, we can cry to God, confess our sin, confess that everything is not all right, repent of our culpability, and rely on God's word. Christ City, we can have a hope based on Jesus' righteousness, the one who suffered everything so that we can live. Let's pray. God, we, we stand before you and we cry out that everything is not all right. We stand before you realizing that we are culpable and yet we stand before you with hope because, because as Spiro says, we can receive new life. So we thank you and we praise you. In your son's name we pray, amen.